All right, so this morning we look to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, and we'll be concentrating most of our time this morning on uh, verses, I would say, 8 to 13. So verses 8 to 13. And what we're looking at this morning is uh, related to Paul's defense of laborers. Paul's defense of laborers, specifically those who labor in the gospel and those who have labored well in the gospel and how that is all tied uh, to the mandates that are for us in the Mosaic Covenant. Specifically, not only related to the Mosaic Covenant, but how ministers could expect to be treated uh, with respect to also the New Covenant. And so Paul is, as he has before, he's dealing with uh, a defense that he's mounting against the Corinthians because at the various points where you see him offering corrections, there are various things that have been under assault. And particularly, the most recent one that we have here is uh, the idea of how do we then treat those who are laboring for the gospel. Specifically, our first context, uh, the priority with which we deal with this is related to the apostles first. And then you see that Paul extends that beyond the apostles. And there are some careful nuances that I believe that we will make together because Paul certainly makes them. And I think it will help drive our understanding of this passage. We concentrate our focus first on what is said in verse nine, uh, verse nine of of uh, chapter nine, uh, where Paul prior to that appeals to the law concerning the things that he's addressing. And he appeals specifically as he already has to marriage and to all the things that deal with marriage. He's also dealt with the idea of eating and drinking as the apostles have done and how that relates to uh, their lives and how Christians ought to do those things, but not necessarily sear one another's conscience or enslave one another's conscience. But he also deals with then uh, compensating those who are uh, laboring faithfully for the gospel. And so I believe that Paul is very clear on these points. I believe that he is speaking uh, with authority from the Lord because he says as much. But I also don't believe he's putting something forward that's novel or should be novel in the minds of the Corinthians. I believe that he is speaking in a way that they should be familiar because there is a sense in which uh, he appeals to uh, the military and he appeals to the agrarian society around him. And I think in doing so, when Paul makes those appeals, he's not simply saying there is virtue in the world system. He's not saying that at all. In fact, what he's saying is the world has looked at the way that God has ordered it, uh, his affairs in, in, uh, with respect to even vocation, and uh, the world borrows from those concepts. And so I believe that Paul is dealing with this from a mosaic perspective, but he's also showing them that the Gentiles, too, ought to consider these things because they come from God. And so uh, although it's expressed in the law of Moses, he's putting forward the point that it is something that is commanded by God himself. But we'll deal with all the nuances of that. First, as we look to uh, verse 9, it says, For it is written in the law of Moses. That is his first appeal. When he wants to deal with this issue, he says that this is something that comes to you from the law of Moses, that during the time in which Moses was leading the Israelites uh, into that second generation, although he would not accompany them, that second generation into the promised land, what he wants them to know is he wants them to know at that time that they should not impede upon uh, God's creation and God's creation's ability 
to provide. And so in this case, he makes the point from Deuteronomy, as Paul does, and he specifically says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. It's the very simple idea of you should not stop the oxen from working or from cultivating the land as he is doing so for your benefit. And so do not impede upon the progress of the establishment of the land by uh, muzzling the ox while he is threshing. He's working. He's trying to provide for the nation, and thus you place a muzzle upon him, and the ox cannot partake of what he's cultivating, and the ox is then impeded from cultivating. And so essentially he's calling for the Israelites to not be their worst enemy. He's saying do not stop the progress of your own nation in this very specific area. But what Paul then says is, as we look at the idea as it's applied in our new covenant context, he's saying God is not concerned about oxen, is he? God's not saying protects, protect the oxen at the expense of the people. He's not saying that. What he's saying is this very real principle of not impeding the work of his laborers is something that transfers from the law of Moses into the new covenant. And so God is concerned all the more with what he says next. He says, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Is he only talking to the Israelites? Is he only talking to the Israelites about oxen? Well, no, for Paul says, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Well, the answer to that question is yes. He's speaking altogether for our sake. For our sake, it was written. Well, why? Why would this be written? Well, he says here, a plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope in the hope of sharing the crops. So now you see that there is this idea that the laborer or the one who labors or the one who's put forward to labor ought to also then be a partaker in that which is cultivated. And so that's what Paul is saying. He wants the plowman. He goes to the agrarian society before them and also in the time of the Israelites and says the plowman is not simply one who is laboring in such a way so that he is just laboring as a means to its own end. He's laboring in hope and he should be laboring in hope. One who plows ought to consider his uh, position in doing so and cultivating the land. But he also ought to look at his duty as plowing as I'm going to partake of uh, this that I'm plowing in the field, whatever the crops may be after that completion cycle. And then also he says the same about those who are on the threshing floor, those who are on the threshing floor. And the threshing floor would have been a place where grain is cultivated or grain is established as uh, a primary commodity. And so he says to do so is not to simply run yourself uh, into the ground. But he's saying that they should have hope in what they're doing because they should be partakers of that which they are cultivating. And so you kind of see where this is going. That Paul is saying there should be a hope in their labors. There should be a sense in which that they're not only laboring, but that they are doing so in such a way so as to receive what they have cultivated. And the apostle is saying that because I want to just back up a little bit. If you consider what is happening in the lives of the people in Corinth, already you start to see these subtle challenges and they'll become a little less than subtle as we move forward. But you're seeing challenges to the gospel itself and challenges put forward toward the laborers. 
And so uh, you already have the personality cults that have been established with the factions. And I believe that even here, the factions are bleeding into uh, the idea of liberty uh, that Paul is trying to establish in the minds of the people of Corinth. But you also have the people are caring for those who are destroying them. And it's a very intimate relationship that they're bankrolling and financing the people who are doing them the most harm. And so Paul is saying, well, then why is it such a strange thing when we would want to uh, partake of that which we're cultivating? Namely you, that we don't see you as commodities. We see you as people. We see you as those in whom we are pouring out God's truth into your lives. And so we have a right to be partakers of that which has been cultivated in you. And that right doesn't come from the apostles. It's not them that they uh, it's not in them that they're saying we have this right. And so you see that what Paul is putting forward is it is simply a divine reality. That's what he goes to first. It's a divine reality. And so he's establishing these points because it is the idea that we have been going on uh, since chapter eight, the idea of Christian freedom and Christian liberty, that Paul wants them to be free. And so long as they are stopping the progress of the gospel in any way, shape or form, they are not free. They are not free people. And so Paul says this idea of freedom is not simply coming from himself. It's coming from the law of Moses. Why? Because Moses wanted the Israelites to be free. Moses wanted them to be free. He wanted them to be free to worship, not simply free from the Egyptians, but he wanted them to be free to worship. And so in that sense, he's dealing with the reality of how then do we treat the ministers of God? How then do we treat the ministers of God? Because you're going to see that they do not treat them very well as the text goes on. As simple as I can put that. But he does say that God is has put this thing forward with respect to the law of Moses, that this is not the first time that one should consider this, that it should be considered in light of the old uh, the old covenant. But there are some things we must consider in light of the new covenant as well. And it is the idea of hope. It is the idea of hope. You see things in this passage like hope, stewardship. You implicitly see the fact that Paul is trying to distance himself from those who are peddling the gospel for gain. But he's also trying to acquaint himself with those who are serious about the work of the Lord in such a way so as they are to consider how can they care for the Christians who labor faithfully. And so Paul is very much dealing with this from a spiritual perspective, but he starts with the temporal. As I've said, he looks at first the plowman. The passage before, he deals with the one who plants a vineyard. He deals with the one who tends a flock, the shepherd. But then he moves to the very specific because he's moving toward the spiritual aspect of this. I'm not saying that there's many layers to consider, but I'm saying there is a spiritual discernment when one has to deal with these issues. The plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope or uh, of uh, sharing the crops. And then he puts this in a simple condition. He puts it in a simple condition. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So what Paul is saying is 
he's saying that there is a sense in which there is a reaping and sowing that deals with this area of sowing truth. And Paul does not make a case in this way for himself. You'll see that as we conclude this text. He's not advocating for himself. He's giving the people a sense of God's will and then how to establish that within their fellowship and then how to deal with the implications of that as they receive the truth faithfully. But he says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And then look what he says. If others share the right over you, do we not more? And then we'll get to what he says to counter this. Now, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about even the time in which we find ourselves with the confessing church at large. Many people are this hour wondering why things are so bad. And I would say that a lot of it ties to the doctrine of Christian giving. And a lot of it ties to the doctrine of Christian giving because many people are financing error. And many people are financing people who bring error. And then there is a lack of care toward those who bring the truth. And so you see that this game of the people who are doing it for the wrong motives and who stand for Satan are the ones who are being bankrolled by those who are claiming to be God's people. And then the people who are actually God's people have no place or nothing uh, that they are holding on to materially. And I believe that for the true Christian, it doesn't matter either way. But I believe that the problem that we see today is the problem that Paul faced, that Paul said, I'm going to eliminate my personal right, my divine right, because I don't want to be a hindrance to the gospel. But I'll tell you what's at stake. I'll tell you the difference between someone who's in it for gain and someone who's in it for the Lord, because Paul makes it plain as we move on to the second part of 12. I'll be jumping back to 12. But look at what he says here, because I want you to consider it with me. He says, nevertheless. We did not use this right. We did not use this right, but we endure all things. Why? Why would we endure all things? So we could hold it over your head? Why? So that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now I'm going to tell you something. I believe that especially in this area, you can tell someone is doing it for gain when they care about their own reputation above the reputation of the gospel. But one who is doing it for Christ as you see here, Paul cared about the reputation of the gospel over himself. That is the very fine line and fine distinction. In fact, it's a very fine line in this area. That Paul nowhere says I'm commanding spiritual things for myself. And I'm commanding material things from you and using those spiritual things in a way so as to manipulate and persuade you to provide for me materially. In fact, Paul says explicitly, I'm not exercising what I'm saying or exercising this right for myself. I'm not appealing on behalf of myself. In other words, Paul knew that Christian contentment was a very liberating thing. But he's also saying that there is the case in which the one who is laboring for the gospel is certainly uh, divinely. Uh, I don't want to use the word entitled, but certainly divinely a partaker of these things. But I want to jump back. Because what he says is he says in verse 12, and I think you see not only his heart, but I think you see what the problem is in verse 12. In the first part, he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? 
Now, as you look at this, even the way it's constructed grammatically, you see that he is talking about the common folk. When he says others, he's talking about the general populace of people. And so I believe that he's appealing to all who would command our wages from us and that which we earn materially, and we provide that to them. So whether it be the areas of government, whether it be the areas of recreation, whatever it is, he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? And you often think about this area, how even us, we as Christians, that we provide without question. Whatever our riches, whatever our standing, whatever our finances, that which we earn, we provide it to many entities who are not for us without batting an eyelash. And I think that when Paul deals with this, I think he has the fact that the people have a certain affection for the areas that they are committing their resources to an undue affection. Now, Paul did not go the way of legalism. Paul did not say that one has to become monastic or in isolation in their thinking in this area. By monasticism, I mean where one just retreats uh, to a religious life and does not contribute at all to anything else uh, without exception. But Paul is dealing with a matter of the affections. I believe that the Christians should be enjoying uh, this life before them because you only go around it once. And I believe that that is a precedent set for us in proverbial wisdom and also ecclesiastical wisdom. So it does not say that you play the shell game of where you hold the people captive to religious activity. And the more that they're around you, the more that you can squeeze money out of them. Because that's the shell and parlor game that's played before us in the evangelical construct today. But I believe that what Paul is saying is that as the ministers of God meet with the needs that they have, that those needs are something that are provided for, but under this condition, because I believe this helps us, that they're sowing spiritual things in you, that they're sowing spiritual things in you, because it is a simple condition, assumed to be true for its own sake. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? I like the way he says that, because That disqualifies a whole lot of what you see in this area in terms of financing and bankrolling people who have no idea what they're talking about related to God. But what Paul says is if we're sowing spiritual things in you, then this could be the result. This should be the result, but I'm not constraining anyone to that result. I'm not looking at you sideways if that's not the result. And I'll tell you why in the verses that succeed our point here. But you look at the sharing of the benefits are only for those who are sowing spiritual things in you. It's amazing. And I think that, you know, even myself in the past, I have been very guilty of this, that you are sowing material or or you're allowing you're allowing People to reap material benefit from you and they are not sowing spiritual truth in you. And so you're giving them material benefit and they're giving you error. And then you scratch your head and you go, how are they thriving? Well, they're thriving because I'm helping them thrive. I'm giving them the platform. I'm giving them of my time, 
of my resources. I'm giving them my affections and the value that I should be giving true ministers of the gospel. And I don't believe that that's happening here, but I believe at large in Christendom at large, I certainly believe that that is the case. But the condition is that one has to sow spiritual things in you in order for this to be the case. And let me tell you, when it's the case, no one commands it. No one commands it. But there is a sense in which as we walk in this Christian life, I love the way that Paul words it in verse 12 because he assumes that the Christian is a partaker of the society around he or she. Not a partaker in the sense of allegiance and affection, but one who has to go about living this life. You and I have to leave here at some point this morning and we have to go out in the world before us and do what it is the Lord has for us to do. He assumes that. In verse 12, he says, if others share the right over you and others do, the Bible commands us, as we looked at in Romans, to honor uh, your rulers, to pay your taxes, to have compassion and utilize what the Lord has provided to you in compassionate ways toward others. That others should have a right over you in certain aspects, not with respect to worship, but they should have a right over you in certain aspects. Because that is the way that the world has functioned at this time until God makes plain his kingdom. But he's also saying, consider then the plight of the ministers who sow faithfully spiritual truth in you. Now, as I said, this isn't advocacy. It's not advocacy. And to be even more frank, I take Paul's position. I take Paul's position because look at what he says next. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we did not use this right. Now, he sounds so much similar to how he sounded when he was speaking about food sacrifice to idols. It almost sounds like what he said before in verse 13 of chapter 8. If food causes my brother to stumble, I'll I'll, I'll never eat meat again. If it's going to cause a fracture and schism between you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ, I won't eat it. Because I don't want to cause you to stumble. It's not because I'm afraid of you. I don't want to cause you to stumble. Well, it's the same thing here. We did not use this right, but we endure all things. Why? So that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. If this area will cause a hindrance with respect to the gospel of Christ going forward, I absolve myself from the right. I don't want to utilize the right. And that's what Paul is saying. But Paul is saying the right is certainly something that comes from God. But he also says my ability to abstain also comes from the Lord. Takes great wisdom in this area. We will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. I love in Corinthians, the one thing that we have to come to terms with is Paul meets things head on. He meets things head on. And we must as well. We must as well. We can't come to this text and whisper through it. Or pretend that this text doesn't say what it says. Paul meets it head on. And I think he's doing so because you have an affluent people in an affluent church who are complacent about Paul. And therefore, they're complacent about ministers of the gospel. And it shows itself in this area. But he goes also back to the context of the Mosaic law. Uh, Look at this in verse 13. Do you not know? So when he says it that way, they should know. They should know. Well, why should Gentiles know? They should know because these things have been proclaimed to them. 
Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? Or those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So I believe that he's appealing to the temple and the temple practices that you and I are familiar with, with respect to the first five books of the Old Testament. And I believe that he's dealing with the priesthood specifically. And he's working it out in the sense that the priests were cared for because of the faithful duty that they were performing on behalf of God in the temple. So the expectation was that their faithfulness would be met with provision. Their faithfulness would be met with provision. Now, I'll be honest, because there's also in this area, I don't want anyone to fall off as the expression goes on the other side of the horse. There's so many weasels who try to figure ways to manipulate you through so-called manufactured discouragement. I don't believe Paul was discouraged because he says, if we back up to verse 12, we did not use this right. And he doesn't go, I'm discouraged. No, he says, we did not use this right. We endure all things. If the Christians don't care for me, as Paul says, he's saying this, if you Christians don't care for me, I'm going to do this anyway. Because I love Christ and I love you. So I'm going to preach and I'm going to proclaim and I'm going to pray and I'm going to fight for you in this cause of the gospel because it's all about the gospel. It's not all about me. And it's not the simple adage that God will provide. He will. But Paul understood that what I have in my hands is a stewardship. I've been entrusted with the gospel and I will not let myself get in the way of the gospel. And so I believe that his endurance is tied to the fact that he wants the gospel to be unimpeded. That's true patience. That's true endurance. That's how you do it day after day, year after year. Because you want the gospel to itself go forward without being prohibited, even by yourself, even by yourself. But he goes into this and he goes into the directive that stems from this. Again, he says, do you not know that those who perform sacred sacrifices or sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Now, I want you to consider that Jesus showed this even throughout the duration of his own earthly ministry. That when he is accosted and approached by the religious leaders of his time after, in their minds, violating the Sabbath, which he did not violate the Sabbath because he's Lord of the Sabbath. But in their minds, he's doing particular acts that demonstrate God's people ought to be cared for by God when they are doing God's business. And there's an anger and a frustration by the religious leaders because, for one, they are being duly compensated and lavishly compensated for not doing what God allows. And they're rebuking Jesus for providing for his disciples and his disciples are following him. But they're they're rebuking him for doing this on the Sabbath. And I believe that Jesus is showing that he's showing the fact that the the provision that God has is tied in that time as the old covenant is coming to a close to the priesthood. 
And he's showing that he is establishing a better priesthood. But he's also showing the simple care that later Paul would speak of. He's showing the care that one should have toward the disciples. We talked about in Matthew the carelessness of that particular false religious system that existed during Jesus's time. That there was a callousness, a coldness, a lack of care. But you also see that Jesus never commanded for those who were wolves to be cared for by the sheep. He never commanded that. And I believe that Paul is of the same cloth. That Paul, in the same way, says essentially that those, as we back up, those who sowed spiritual, if we sowed spiritual things in you. Well, listen, we must sow spiritual things in you. You see today, and we have to expose it for what it is, because I think that it does in this area certainly cause a bit of tension in the minds of many people. You have people who are negotiating their material benefit before they sow spiritual things in the people. And so you have this practice that is taking place well before our time, but it has only gained momentum as the years go by. Of people standing before you and commanding things from you. And then when it's time to receive something spiritual from them. It's a miss. They've missed the target. They've missed the mark. But here the assumption is that they are engaged in the work of the Lord. The assumption is also that they are bearing in themselves evidence of the Lord's work in them. But let me explain to you what the assumption never is. The assumption never is that this is transactional. Because the true minister wants to see the gospel unimpeded. Wants to see the gospel unimpeded. God's true people, his true apostles, his true ministers throughout the age. He wants to see the gospel. God wants to see it unimpeded, but so do his men. And with that comes the endurance of all things. The endurance. We don't escape the trials. We don't escape the things that would cause duress. But we also do not want to be a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. We also don't want to be a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. But look at 14. Paul doesn't shy away from it. You would expect that he would after all that's said, after he says... What he says in verse 12 in the second part of it. But he says, just as it was true in the time of the law of Moses, and just as it was true as God provided for his priest in this way, as they were partakers, and just as it was true in society at large. Look at verse 14. So also the Lord directed. So this comes from the Lord. He says the Lord directed. He doesn't say this comes from men. He doesn't say this comes from a board of men. He says the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, I have heard so many start here and end here. And I don't believe that does just justice to the text or what the spirit of God has intended. We must look at what it says after. Verse 15. Paul says. But I have used none of these things. I have used none of these things. And then 
I love how Paul says this because he says it so as to put them at ease so that they don't think they're being manipulated into doing something that they would not otherwise do based on their convictions. He's very honest. A quality you see in God's true servants, honesty. And I am not writing these things because that would be the assumption. Well, Paul, why are you bringing this up? I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. I'm not saying it because I want you to do it for me. I'm saying it because it's what God has directed. But I also want you to see that I don't have to go that way. That I don't have to do that very thing if it means the gospel in some way will be hindered in its proclamation and in its practice in the lives of the people. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. I've used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. There is no, quote unquote, licking of the chops as we come to this passage, because Paul is saying essentially that one can forgo this right. One can forgo this right if it means that the gospel must Go forward. But look at what he says. He makes it intensely personal. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. So Paul says, I'm going to hold to this. But you also have to know how things work. And you also have to know how God's mind works. Especially in this area. And what God's commands are. What God has... Established. But Paul cared so much about putting forward a sure testimony that he didn't want to even nullify his own boast that I do what I do so that the reputation of the gospel is considered above even myself. He said, I'd, I'd, I'd rather die. It'd be, it'd be better for me to die than for anyone to say that they can lay claim. I believe this is what he's referring to. That they can lay claim to ownership over me. And I think we get that from what we see even in the factions. So he's correcting so many things here. Because to say I belong to somebody, to put anyone, myself or anyone, in a faction, which you're following or hiding behind, is to also claim your ownership over that person. Because you'll polish that person's image. You'll make sure that that person is presentable and crafted in your likeness because there's adultery involved. You'll make sure that you can fan the flames of whatever keeps the momentum going to uphold that image and that idol and that idolatry. But I think that Paul is dealing with intense spiritual warfare in this area. And I think he's dealing with it because he only wants... Christ to lay claim on people and people to lay claim to Christ. That's all he wants. He doesn't want any area to be open for idolatry. And so he says, I'm going to go on preaching the gospel. I'm not going to do it with anger, with frustration. I'm not going to passive aggressively mark you down. Because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. You didn't provide the amount I wanted you to provide. I'm not going to do that. He says, I'm going to go on preaching the gospel. 
you see such a love that Paul has for God's people. That you see often here, and you saw it in Romans, that Paul would, in his own mind, cease to exist if it meant that that would cause the, the progress of God's people further beyond himself. It's why he was so torn when he was in jail and facing death even. He was torn between, I want to stay here and be faithful and minister and love and honor God's people and honor God among them. But I also want to be with him. I believe that was a very real tension for him. I also want to be with him. But look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. It's why you hear people today boasting of titles, because wrapped up in those titles is a bunch of idolatry and a bunch of financial gain and a parlor game that everyone's playing. But he says, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. I'm doing what I ought to do. This is my reasonable service. For I am under compulsion. I believe this is the kind of compulsion that is a good compulsion. That I must show up all the time and proclaim the truth of the gospel. That I'm under compulsion. I'm constrained to that. I don't find that particular act to be such a compulsive act in a negative sense that I wish I could cease from doing it. No, it is a compulsive act and I could not do anything other than that when I come before God's people. But look at what he says. I'm cursed if I don't preach the gospel. So I believe that this overrides the personal claim that Paul says would be the right of those who labor. The directive that comes from the Lord in verse 14. That one can't leverage what you think you ought to receive on behalf of the gospel versus I'm going to preach it or not preach it. And he says once you're called into this service, it doesn't matter who provides or who doesn't. You're constrained to it. And if you don't do it. Then cursed be you. Cursed be you if you ought to do it and you don't do it. I think that in this area of faithfulness, so many talk about faithfulness and pat each other on the back for being faithful. And they're really just being faithful to each other, uh, which is a limited kind of faithfulness. But I think if you really consider this area for what it is. That faithfulness never comes at the expense of the people. It comes to the benefit of the people. And often the war that is waged in this area of faithfulness is to continue to be constrained to preaching the gospel. With the idea that I'm doing it not only in the positive sense for the one who saved me, the one who purchased me, and the one who loved me. But Paul also goes to the negative sense. However you receive what is said, however you feel about what is said, I am cursed if I don't proceed in the proclamation of it. I must continue to preach the gospel. I believe that that is a sure sign of those who belong to him. We'll end with verse uh, 18, but I want to show you verse 17. I went further than I had hoped, but I think it all ties together. Look at this in verse 17. For if I do this voluntarily... I believe if we were standing or sitting in a room surrounded by hundreds of ministers, and if you asked them if they would do it voluntarily, many of them would raise their hands, but they'd be lying. Because none of them, I believe, would do it voluntarily. None of them would. Because the kind of compulsion they're under is based on, I'm doing something trying to earn a way. It's business. 
It's a transaction. But look at this. If I do this voluntarily, look at Paul's mindset. Because I truly believe, I, I, can, I can speak for us here. I believe we all do what we do because we're, look at the, we're looking at the eternal reward. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. If no one provides anything for it, I have the eternal reward. I have eternal riches. But if against my will, if I don't really want to do it, but yet I'm called to it. So he's talking about, I believe, the eternal struggle of our sanctification. If against my will, and I don't think he was doing it against his will, but he's speaking on behalf of those who would perhaps see this as some kind of constraint. If against my will, look at this. He doesn't say stop doing it. If you're doing it against your will, go do something else. No. He says if if you're called to do this, understand it then this way. Now get your attitude in check, but understand it this way. I have a stewardship entrusted to me. So if I walk in here and don't want to do it, then I have a stewardship that tells me you better do it. And if I voluntarily want to do it, then I have an eternal reward that's waiting for me. That's such a blessing. That's such an encouragement. And then he says, well, what then is my reward? Well, remember that room of ministers. I believe that they would all walk out at this point because look at what he says. This is his reward. This is how spiritual revolution and revival starts. That when I preach the gospel... I may offer the gospel without charge. That's his. He's saying that's my reward. That is to me the temporal reward that I get to receive from you, that I can offer it for free. Nobody talks like that anymore. That I offer it for free without charge so as not to make full use of my right of the gospel or in the gospel. It goes back to what he said before. I'm not exercising the right. I'd rather it be free for you. I want it to be free for you because if it's free for you, you won't be hindered by all the things that may be encumbrances by charging for it. Well, here's what's at stake and we end here. For though I am free from all men, I'm free from all men. I'm free. It's amazing how free people can think and how free people in Christ can speak. I'm free from all men. I have made myself, for though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all. Well, what kind of slave am I being? The one that is under compulsion to proclaim the message that liberates you. So that I can win you to the eternal kingdom and eternal freedom. And I don't want anything temporally to get in the way of that. That's Paul's heart. And I believe that that's our heart. I believe that that is the true Christian's heart, not simply the so-called true minister's heart. But I believe it's the true Christian's heart. I'm not saying Christians don't come under need and the, uh, the need to be cared for. But I'm saying that no one comes along and says, here's how much the gospel cost. And here's how much it costs you before I open my mouth and proclaim it. That that is not uh, befitting of those who are truly God's uh, people. It is befitting of those who are hirelings. Let's pray.